0: Father, I know nothing. This is not my knowledge. This is not my experience. This is your knowledge. This is your history. This is what you've done for your people. I ask that I'm just the vessel that you speak through me. I ask that you create spirit and truth within our our worship ceremony here today. And open our eyes, open our minds, and just let us know you better in your name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter four, I've had an interesting experience as I've, I've thought about thirst both from the, thank you, both from the physical standpoint and from the spiritual standpoint. And so you're going to see a theme throughout the sermon. It's basically about thirst and we're going to compare physical thirst and spiritual thirst. We're going to see if we can see the difference. But to describe physical thirst, back when I was in college, it was around, I don't know, uh, winter break, somewhere around there, January, February. A group of guys, just spur of the moment, said, we don't want to go home, we want to go on a trip. And so, out of the blue, we picked Lake Powell. We didn't look at weather, we didn't look at anything, we just packed the car and headed to Lake Powell. On that commute, we made it to Utah, and we were in a blizzard. It was clear that we're not going to be hiking in any of this, so we have to come up with another plan. Again, no research, but we thought, if we head south, we'll get away from the snow. Let's go to Arizona. So Arizona it was. I remember going through Flagstaff and be like, Flagstaff, Arizona has snow? And it was snowing in Flagstaff, Arizona. We made it all the way to Phoenix, and there was an REI store. And we were like, man, there has to be somebody in, the, in REI that knows where to go hiking. So we went in the store, and this guy that just looks like, you know he could accomplish anything, he could jump out of an airplane or off a mountain and just be able to survive, he's like, "Yeah, I have a perfect hike for you." We didn't ask him about the technical ability of the hike. We didn't ask him any questions. We just said, "Where's the location?" He gave us the location. we went there. And we had to go down into a, uh, a canyon. And thinking about that now, we didn't have any climbing gear. We didn't have any experience getting down into a canyon. And I would not be able to do that today. If I had the same physical ability as I did back when I was 20 years old, I am too terrified to try, try that again today. I remember trying to get down some steep stuff. And there was one rock you had to jump to another rock. And it was just a sheer drop off. And we did it. And we made it down to the canyon. And we just were like, OK, now what? Because it's probably about 20 feet. You have a river in the middle, and then sheer cliffs on either side. So we thought, well, we're going to head one direction. We can either go up or down. So we just picked down. And that river was a small river. I don't even know if you could call it a river. It was a stream of water. And that stream of water was always by our side. So we never had to worry about water. But we just kept walking, and we kept walking. Two days went by, and finally that that stream became a river and now we were waiting in it. That 20 feet of, of land that we had now was just water. We were in the middle of it. And we crossed a corner, and we realized, uh-oh, we could see further down the canyon. It turned to a lake and a faster stream. We, were, we couldn't go any farther. We couldn't turn around and head back because we were running out of food. So finally we found a spot where we thought we could climb up. And again, we've never had to worry about water at this point. We've always had water right beside beside us the whole entire time. So we just start climbing up. And this I will never forget. My friends barely broke 5'10". They were 50, 60 pounds lighter than me. They were having trouble getting up because every time they put weight on something, it would just crumble and fall. I was behind them, and if they were having trouble, everything that I was trying to put my faith in crumbled away and fell. I remember being in not near the middle but almost near the middle where I was too far to go down But yet too scared to to continue to go up and I froze And so somebody came down and they grabbed my backpack and they brought my backpack up and finally I was like I just got to scramble and I remember scrambling as fast as I can and I made it up And I was like yes, we're done the thing that we forgot is no one filled their Nalgene Nobody worried about water But now we're on top of Arizona, in the heat of the day, and here's some of the pictures. It's dry, it's a desert, It's cactus everywhere. Now we have to try and figure out, how do we get back? So we start going around through the mountain. We thought we could find a shortcut. We ended up not finding a shortcut. But after a day, we found a road. And this road finally led us back to our car. But it was a day and a half in the sun, and we were tired, we were sunburned, we were thirsty. I remember trying to make a joke and not even being able to laugh because my lips were so dry. I should have come home. (laughs) Finally when we saw the car, we just threw our backpacks in, turned it on and drove to the local town. And I remember running into the restaurant, not even waiting for a server to serve us, sitting down and just drinking the water. And finally the server came by and she's like, why don't I just bring you several pitchers of water because you guys look like you've had a hard time. Thirst, it's an incredible thing. Thirst, I think we can learn a lot about it in John chapter 4. And I want to read John chapter 4 with you. And as we read it, we're going to stop several times because if you read it too fast, we're going to miss a lot of what's in there. So John chapter 4, it starts out with Jesus having to leave Judea because the Pharisees there were starting to get a little irritated with Jesus. Jesus. And it's early in Jesus's ministry where he doesn't want to confront them just yet. So now he leaves and he's going to go to Galilee. I want you to remember the Pharisees, they were the religious elite of the Jewish people. These were the people of the people. I mean, these were the people to know, right? Jesus had a hard time with the Pharisees, so he had to leave and he goes to Galilee John chapter four, four, verse four. He had to go through Samaria on the way. There's a word there I think is really interesting. He had. Because geographically, there's no reason he had to go through Samaria. Back in those days, for a Jew to go through Samaria, there had to be some dire circumstances for him to do that. They would go along the coast of the Jordan River, or sorry, along the Jordan River or along the coast on the ocean. They wouldn't want to cross through Samaria even though it was the shortest way. But there's a reason that it used had. It's not worrying about Samaria. It's not worrying about Gentile versus Jew. But we're going to learn the reason why they said he had to go here. He had to go through Samaria on his way. Eventually, he came to the Samaria, Samarian, Samarian town Sychar near the fields that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Sychar is pretty interesting. You're going to know more about Sychar, or I, I bet you already know about Sychar than more about Sychar than what you think. But from Jerusalem to Sychar, it's about 30 miles. So Jesus is almost halfway. He's gone 30 miles. So he's about a day and a half into his journey. Sychar, you might have heard as, be call, as called Shechem. So Shechem is Sychar. It's the same place. Back in Shechem... It was, remember, it was the town where um, when Abraham made a covenant with God, then when Jacob was coming back from his, self, his self-imposed uh, time out, he wrestled with Jesus. He made an altar. Then J- Jacob gifted Joseph this town. And in this map, you can see that Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's of his sons, Shechem is right in the middle of that, it's a pretty popular town, or it's a pretty well-known town back in that day. Moses instructed the Israelites during that time, once you cross into the promised land, send six tribes to Mount Ebal, six tribes to Mount Gerizim. And from Gerizim, it was a forested place. It was, it, it was beautiful. Mount Ebal, it was bald. It was barren. There was nothing on there. From Mount Gerizim, the tribes were supposed to yell blessings if they followed God's, uh, God's rule. And from Ebal, they were supposed to yell curses on what happens if they didn't follow God's rule. Shechem was right in the middle of this. It's a pretty popular place. A pretty well-known place back in the day. And this is where our story begins. So think, Jesus, have, Jesus has walked roughly 30 miles. He's a day and a half in his journey. And he's coming to this town that is pretty well-known. A pretty popular town. Jesus knows this. He, re, he wrestled Jacob here. And it tells us that Jacob's well is here. And that's pretty important as we move along in the story. But there, Jesus was tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well, and it was about noontime. So, your Bible might say it was the sixth hour. So, the Israelite day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour gives us the noontime. Jesus was weary, Jesus left heaven. Gave up his divine form for human form, and he was weary. What's more human than being weary? And it was noontime, the heat of the day. He's in the Middle East. It's hot. He's tired. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. The creator of the ocean, the calmer of the waves and the sea, the king of kings relied on another stranger to provide him water and Jesus had a need, but we're going to learn that Jesus's physical need was not his main mission. Here he had a spiritual need and that's the reason he had to come to Samaria. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village. So remember, we talked about Jew and Samaritan. There was a lot of prejudice here. A Jew wouldn't accept a drink of water or a mor- morsel of food if a Samaritan touched it because it would be deemed unclean. The disciples left Jesus at the well because, again, it's new time, noon time. Who's going to go to the well? So Jesus sh- shouldn't come in contact with anything, anyone. So the disciples went in and bought Jesus food. So you wouldn't have to come into contact with a Samaritan shadow and become unclean. So the disciples thought Jesus will be safe here by himself, but this woman comes to get water and it's noontime. This tells us a a fact. Most times people would go get water early in the morning or in the evening, not at noontime. So if she comes at noontime and she's by herself, there's a reason that she's coming at noontime by herself because gathering water was a chore, but it was also a big social event. You wouldn't want to do this by yourself. And so it tells us that she was probably trying to evade people. That she was trying to go get water, to gather this shore, and not see anyone else. Why would she want to do this and not see anyone else? Again, I think as we read, we're going to get the answer to that. The woman was surprised, for the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. Again, you could become unclean just by drinking or eating something that a Samaritan touched. The Samaritans remember you had the Southern kingdom, Jerusalem, Judah, and the Northern kingdom. The Northern kingdom broke off. Samaria was their capital. The Northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians and the Assyrians were ruthless, mean people. They would take half the people out, and intermix them with the, into new countries that they brought them. And they would bring other foreigners in. And so that the people that stayed in the northern kingdom had to intermarry and had, had to mix with the foreigners coming in. And the Jews thought this was despicable. You were a pure Jew and now you're a mixed race? Disgusting. That's what the, the mind of the Jew was. Even today, is, people from Israel will go around Samaria because they don't want to come into contact with Palestinians. It's still a prejudice that, that exists today. And the Samaritans, re, you, you remember the southern kingdom was invaded by Babylon. And after captivity, they came back from Babylon. And in Ezra's time, they started to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans pleaded with the Jews, let us help build the temple. We can help, let us help. And the Jews said, no, you're a mixed race, you're unclean. You cannot help us with the temple. So the Samaritans said, okay, they went back to Shechem, Sychar, Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple, a replica of what was in Jerusalem. And this was around Alexander the Great's day. That was later destroyed in about 126 BC. But an altar, a replica altar of what was in Jerusalem, was here in Samaria. And so the Samarians never gave up their idols, they still claimed idol worship within their worship to, the, to God. And so there has been this controversy. What's pure? What's mixed? What just dropped on the floor? (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) And in the prejudicedness, Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is going to break down a veil that says, you know what? Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Sinner, Religious person, it doesn't matter. And this is what Jesus is doing when he's asking for a drink. Because we're going to learn, Jesus never gets that drink that he asked for. So uh, she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Man, if I think back in my life, how many times did I have Jesus there and I had an opportunity to connect with him and I didn't know anyone? I didn't know he was there. I ignored him. This woman is speaking to the creator of the world, the Savior, the Messiah, and she doesn't know. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. I guess the rule of the day was BYOB, bring your own bucket. You don't have a rope or a bucket and Jacob's well, it was measured recently. It was hundred feet deep, but it was also measured back in 670 AD. And it was 240 feet deep. So Jacob's well in Jesus's time was really, really deep. But G- Jacob's well was not fed by a spring. It was a giant cistern that collected water and held water. So Jacob's well, if you pull out the water, it's stagnant, dirty water. I want you to keep that in mind, sir. You don't have a bucket or a rope, she said, and this well is very deep. Where do you get this living water? He has her interest, but she's coming from a physical side, not a spiritual side. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Again, instead of looking forward, she's looking backwards and she's going to throw out the patriarch. Are you greater than Jacob? This is the Messiah who wrestled with Jacob. Of course, he's greater than Jacob. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never become thirsty again. It, is, it becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them internal life. So look, picture this. Jesus is right there at a well, Jacob's well, a famous well. Stagnant water. It's just a cistern that holds water. It has to be bugs in there. It has to be dirty. And the contrast of what Jesus is describing is fresh, bubbling spring that provides eternal life. And man, thirsty again. I don't know if you guys can relate, but there's sometimes I'm, I can be unhappy. And sometimes when I'm unhappy, I go to the Amazon app, and I don't know why I do this, but buy it now sure is fun. You click buy it now and you look at that shipping tracking, man, that gives you a boost of endorphins. I remember one time we were cleaning the basement and Hannah's like, you have an Amazon problem. I'm like, I don't have an Amazon problem, you have a shoe buying problem. And Hannah pointed to a stack of boxes, of Amazon boxes that were unopened. So I just had to be like, yes, I do have an Amazon problem. You see, things of this world will leave you thirsty again. Philip Cushman, who wrote several famous books about the human psychology. He wrote, he, he said, our prosperous and individualistic society has constructed a self that is a disappointment to itself. Our culture, our society has created a person who is disappointed with that person. When people come to the end of their lives and they look back at what they've accomplished, They're disappointed. The Harris poll company completed a poll in 2017 and in their poll, they found that 33% of the, of Americans were happy. That means 67% of Americans are unhappy. Think about that. 77% of those people were worried about finances. Over half said they were frustrated and disappointed with where their career was going. I want you to think of Tom Brady. We all know Tom Brady, right? He's worth 180 million. He's won six Super Bowls, three MVP League awards. He's been 50 he, in People's Magazine. He's been part of the 50 most beautiful people. He's married to a super a supermodel. Out of the world. Can you imagine somebody that has gained more worldly? gain or worldly fame than Tom Brady. He should be on top of his career, right? Several years ago, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes. In the interview, they were talking about his success. Tom Brady looked at the camera with almost a a sorry look on his face. And talking about his success, he said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl wins and still think there is something greater out there for me? There has to be more than this and the interviewer caught the interviewer's attention. He said, well, what do you think that would be? Tom Brady answers. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, there is parts about me that I'm trying to find. Man, if I was playing football, I'd be like, Hey, I'm Tom Brady. I get to be Tom Brady. Tom Brady would be the pinnacle of his his success. He's dedicated his life to his craft and his profession. And he comes and he he says, you know, there has to be more to life than this. This world, no matter what you're going after, if it's of this world, you're going to thirst again. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He sees her. He sees that she's alone. And he's tired and weary, hot. And yet he's trying to minister to her in this moment thirst again, if you keep doing what you're doing, but I can offer you eternal life. And she hears this. And in verse 15, she says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I don't, I won't have to come back to the well again. She's thinking physical, man. You could get rid of one of my chores for me. Awesome. Do that for me. And you got to think like Jesus is like, no, you're missing the mark completely. So Jesus sees this this, and he says, go and get your husband. You see, the desire of ages says, a sinner needs to recognize his Savior. And this is what Jesus was doing. He's changing the subject a little bit more. baby stepping her into the way so that he can tell her something really big. So he's bringing up something that's sensitive to her. He's bringing something up that she's trying to keep hidden. It's the reason why she came out at noontime. It's the reason that she came by herself because she was an outcast. She was, she didn't feel worthy. So Jesus said, bring your husbands, uh, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus's reply is really interesting. He calls it out. He reads the pages of her book of of her life. He says, you're telling the truth. You don't have a husband. You've had 5 husbands and now you live with a man who's not your husband. This is interesting. In the Judea law, you could have 3 divorces before you were shunned and and deemed inappropriate. She's had 5 husbands. Now that would be a pretty pretty bad a string of bad luck if all of those ended up in uh, her being a widow. So I don't think we can go there. I think there had to be something outside of Just death for her to go through five husbands. She's on her sixth man, but she's done with marriage because she doesn't even want to marry that guy. Doug Batchelor brought up something I thought was pretty interesting. What does the woman represent in biblical prophecy? The church. She's gone through five husbands. She's on her sixth. Jesus, the living water, is going to give her eternal life. Jesus is the seventh. Certainly you spoke the truth. Jesus is the optimist here, but what Jesus is saying is trying to do is for, for him to be her savior savior, for him to offer eternal life, the living water. She needs to recognize her sins. Desire of ages says she, she's just open to what Jesus is saying because he read the books of the pages of her, her life and she's blown away. But yet, She doesn't want to bring this up anymore. So in verse 19, she creates a smoke screen. She brings up religious controversy. So in a tough situation, I might be like, oh, Sunday keeping, Sabbath keeping. I'm going to bring up something that might be a religious controversy to, to deflect the truth. And this is what she says. You must be a prophet. So tell me why it is that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship. While we Samaritans claim it is here in Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship, she's calling out the prejudice between Jew and Samaritan and who's right. Jesus answer is pretty amazing. In summary, what Jesus is saying is it's not the place you worship. It's the attitude you worship and his response. Believe me, dear woman, your Bible might say woman. And I've read into this. In the translation, this is more madame or madam. I don't think Jesus would be rude here if he's giving up his physical, physical want of water and he's trying to help this person where he had to go to Samaria just for this person. It's a divine intervention. I think the reason why he had to go to Samaria is because days before he was pleading to God to give him wisdom on where to go and what to do and how to win souls. You can see he's not doing it in Judea, in Jerusalem. So he's pleading, God, send me somewhere where I can win some souls. Send me to somebody who's thirsty. And this is the reason why he had to go to Samaria, because the Holy Spirit put, a hit, put Jesus at this place, at this time, to meet this woman. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about what you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. The father is looking for those who worship him in that way. For God is the spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Let's dissect that a little bit. Jesus recognizes that the Jews do have the lineage of Christ. That God gave Jews the knowledge of Him and His character, and the Jews were supposed to carry that through, but this is the end of that. Now, Jesus and God is representing them, His character, to everybody. So God, Jesus right here is breaking down the barrier. And He said, Indeed, it is here now. Worship in spirit and truth, and something that I've had a very hard time in my Christian walk to gather and to comprehend is the Holy Spirit, because I hear spirit and I automatically get a sh- you know a shudder down my spine. I almost think of the exorcism, and that's the complete opposite. And you know, when I was preparing for this sermon, I came to spirit and truth, and I was a little lost. And I think it's a pretty awesome miracle that i i came across romans 24 uh, romans 8 26 and the holy spirit helps us in our weakness for example we don't know what god wants us to pray for but the holy spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words and the father knows all hearts Oh, sorry. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, and the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. So it's easy to look at the story and be like, She had Jesus right there. Man, if I had Jesus right there, my whole spiritual walk would be different. But guess what, folks? You have the Holy Spirit praying for you on your behalf. You might not know the words to use, but the Holy Spirit is using the right words. In groanings, words can't be expressed. I think that is pretty awesome in spirit and in truth the spirit can be anywhere anytime no matter what to anybody the spirit is there the woman's starting to catch on the Samaritans had the Bible up to Deuteronomy and they forgot the rest or they gave up the rest but up to Deuteronomy they kept it so she must have known her Bible because her response is I know the Messiah is coming The one who's called Christ, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus is very blunt in his answer. I don't know if Jesus is this blunt in his answer to any of the Jews. In Jesus' answer, even the disciples are not grasping what Jesus is saying. I want you to think back to the burning bush when Moses said, what should I call you? And the response is, I am that I am who I am. Jesus' responds to the woman, I am the Messiah. Man, remember when he healed people and he said, shh, don't tell anyone. He tried to keep it a secret. Here he's open about it. I am the Messiah. I don't know if you can be more clear than that. With perfect timing, the disciples walk back and they're shocked. They're thinking, whoa, we left you by the well by yourself. You're supposed to be clean. You're not supposed to talk to Samaritans, and here you are. You got into a conversation with one. Disciples are not grasping what's going on right now. The, the woman left her bucket at the well and ran to the city. She forgot her physical need. She forgot her chore, left her bucket. She forgot the Savior never has received that water yet. But here's the contrast. She came alone. She came as an outcast. She's leaving now towards the city excited. She's no longer an outcast. She's a change agent. She's going to change this town. She's, as we see, going to be well received. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. I heard somebody say come and see is the best sermon ever preached could he possibly be the Messiah she had enough influence or her words had enough influence that the people came streaming from the village to see him the disciples are getting worried about Jesus They're saying did someone feed you Jesus what's going on we know that you were tired and weary in desire of ages it says that Jesus in this moment his face is shining he's in meditation he's in Pure joy because he found somebody that was thirsty and he gave them the living water. The disciples don't know what's going on. So across from them, there's a field and Jesus goes into, goes into the uh, uh, planter versus the harvester. On verse 38, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you'll get to gather the harvest. Later, Bill's going to help me pass something out. The story of the horde will be. Our responsibility as as Christians is is to partake in the harvest. What we learned here, you could be a sinner, you could be an outcast, You could think very little of yourself. It doesn't matter. You can be a great evangelist. And as that responsibility of carrying Christ's name is we need harvesters. In verse 36, it says, the harvesters are paid good wages. There's a reward for being the harvester. So in my sermon, I'm not going to be able to do justice of what the Hortleby parable or story does. And so I want you to take that home this afternoon and read it. If you've read it in the past, please read it again. If you've never read it, read it you're going to love it. The hortlebee explains the harvester and the planter in a way I'll never be able to explain it. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of the woman. Remember, we began the story the Pharisees in Jerusalem were put off by Jesus? In Jerusalem, do you know how many miracles Jesus had to do? And still they were like, show us, prove us, prove to us that you're still the Son of God. In this story with the Samaritans, did any miracle occur? Did any grand act occur other than just a conversation? The belief of the Samaritans, they believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. At the start of this, the Samaritan woman didn't even offer Jesus a drink of water because she thought, well, he wouldn't even take it. He would have deemed it unclean just because I I touched it. This prejudice, this hatred. Now Jesus stayed with the Samaritans for two days. He ate their food. He slept under their roofs. He taught in their streets. He became a part of them. At this very moment, Jesus was tearing down the veil between Jew and Gentile. The disciples are not recognizing what's going on. The disciples will not recognize this moment until after Jesus ascends to heaven, and then they'll realize what Jesus was doing here. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but what we heard for ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. I think that's pretty amazing. Thirst. You know, there's another time in John where it mentions Jesus is thirsty. And I'm going to turn to John 19, chapter 19, verse 28. So in John 19, Jesus is led away to be crucified. Jesus is placed on the cross. And then Jesus dies on the cross. 1928 Jesus knew that his mission was now fulfilled and to fulfill the scriptures he said I'm thirsty a jar of sour wine was sitting there so they soaked it up in a sponge and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips when Jesus tasted it he said it it is finished then he bowed his head and released his spirit I thought it was interesting what does it mean there for the scriptures to be fulfilled? Because this is all listed in Psalms. And Psalms teaches us exactly what Jesus' emotions and what he's talking about. And in Psalms, Psalms 22, 19 through 10. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay away, Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. Remember when he's on the cross, all of our sins, all of our iniquities are placed on him. That weight separates him from his father, separates him from God. And on the cross, he says, I'm thirsty. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like the sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. O oh Lord, do not stay far away from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Psalm 69 gives us a little bit more background. Their insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. If only one person would show me some pity. If only one would turn and comfort me. But instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Let the bountiful table set before them become a snare for their prosperity and their prosperity a trap. Remember what Cushman said? Our prosperity, our material, materialistic, our individualism has created a self that's disappointed in itself. I think this has come true. But Jesus on the cross, I'm thirsty, and then he dies. I, I've tried to understand, what did that thirsty mean? Did it mean I'm thirsty because he's separated from God and all the sins and all of our iniquities are, are, are placed upon him? Or is he thirsty because he wants the souls that he's on the cross dying for to come and drink from the living well? If you remember the person right next to him on the cross, Jesus forgets his suffering so that he can minister to the other person. Man, when I think Job said it best, Job 19. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. I see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my very own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Revelation. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never again be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm going to ask that our team sings one closing song, and then I'll come back up and finish finish us off with prayer. At the close of the Bible, the very last part of Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Do you remember that? Come. Come let anyone who hear this say come let anyone who is thirsty come let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life he jesus who is the faithful witness to all these things says yes i'm coming soon amen Amen. come lord jesus let's bow our heads and pray dear heavenly father we are blown away by the love that you've bestowed upon us. We are blown away by everything that you've done for us, and we beg you for the living water. We beg you for the spirit and the truth and for a religion that doesn't worry about location but a religion that worries about attitude and for a religion that focuses on the harvester. We want to see you that day with our very own eyes, and we know that you're coming soon, and we just hope that you prepare us for that. In your name, amen.